good morning and welcome to episode two of Classical Voice Canada, where we meet artists and discuss classical voice together. I'm your host, Kira Braun, and I'm so very glad you've joined us today. Today's guest is Canadian mezzo-soprano Megan Reimer Larios. and welcome to Classical Voice Canada. I am very excited to have you on the show today and it's wonderful to get to see you actually as well even though our listeners won't be able to but there you are on screen and you look gorgeous. How are you today? I'm well thank you so much for having me I really appreciate it and then the same thing right back to you it's nice to see faces especially in this time. It sure is we've really missed our human contact haven't we? Yes, indeed. Especially as musicians, I think. Oh, that's huge. Yeah, we really thrive on all of that and being together, working in ensembles, working with our coaches and seeing those faces and getting the reinforcement in what we do. So yeah, you make a huge point there. So let's get started on our interview, Megan. I want to know right from the very beginning of your musical life, I know that you have some early roots in the choral tradition, and it even says on your website that it's the Mennonite choral tradition that you grew up with. That is so true, isn't it? It is indeed. Yeah, I'm originally from southern Manitoba. I've been based in Toronto for the last little while, but my roots are back here in Manitoba, and I grew up in the Mennonite choral tradition. And I'm sure you and I can have lots of discussions on how that is growing up with the Mennonite background, but uh, I guess that's kind of where my musical journey begins, because those musical journeys in the Mennonite tradition certainly start right from small. So we learned to sing hymnody right from really tiny. I have memories just being able to peek over the top of the church pew and mom and dad holding the hymnal there just so I could see it. And then mom would point out the melody notes. And then you would learn to sing melody by following the notes and listening. And then, you know, once you kind of grew into knowing the pieces, then, you know, then you would do the next challenge of learning the alto line. And then maybe you uh-huh. would learn the alto line. And then, and then maybe, you know, down the road, you learn the tenor line even because there's never enough tenors. <laughs> so then you're going to learn the tenor line too. And of course, dad sang bass. So we didn't need a bass. We had a bass. Very good. But yeah. So we started learning music pretty early and it's part of the culture in so many ways. It's part of daily life, it's part of church life, it's part of meal time, it's part of gathering time and spending time together. The music is always part of that. Somebody will start a hymn and will sing along or somebody pulls out a guitar and you start singing those old spirituals and gospel songs and everyone joins in in four-part harmony because that's just what we do. That's wonderful. It's a huge bonding experience too. Well, we have a story about our Mennonite roots, don't we? We do. And how we (laughs) discovered that we are cousins. Um, I think this happened last year when I was doing some genealogy research. And so I discovered, first of all, that we were connected. And then, crazily enough, that line of connection goes all the way up back to a Jacob Hepner, which is the same sixth great-grandfather that Canadian superstar tenor Ben Hepner is descended from as well. So how's that? Take that choral tradition of Mennonites. Yes, (laughs) indeed. That was so wonderful. So what about your actual voice education then? When you decided you wanted to pursue singing, where did you start out? Oh gosh, I think I was always a performer right from the get-go. I was a pretty shy kid, but I think being able to perform or put on shows was my way of expressing myself in a lot of ways. So, but in the culturally, it's not really something that one pursues as as a as a career unless you're planning to go into church music or to give back to the community in a significant way. To be a soloist is a little bit of a different thing. So I wasn't really sure I wanted to do that. I really, there were other interests that I had, but 
it took a long time, I think, until the end of grade 12, because I did music all through high school and growing up in community theater and musicals. I was always part of all the musicals and all the community theater projects. And my parents were both very much involved in community events and, of course, church, church music as well. But I think in grade 12, I decided I wanted to apply to music school and maybe be a singer. <laughs> I wasn't totally sure if I would even get in because I didn't really have formal training. Everything was kind of just absorbed through my experience of life. Right. So I applied and I got in. So I just kind of ex kept exploring it because the door opened. Fantastic. And so where did you apply? In, within Manitoba? I did. I applied to Canadian Mennonite University and I sent in my cassette tape back in those days. We didn't have CD applications <laughs> or digital ones. So I sent in, you know, in an old manila orange file folder with my paperwork and my cassette tape. And I got in and I got a little scholarship to help cover some of my, my costs. And that kind of just was the way to go. I honestly didn't think I would get into the University of Manitoba. So I didn't even bother applying. So I applied to Canadian Mennonite University in Winnipeg. I wanted to be in Winnipeg and be part of that community there. And so that's where I went. That's wonderful. And in your time there at the Mennonite University, was there a favorite teacher that you connected with? Well, I had one voice teacher there pretty much for my whole four years doing my undergrad there. And I worked with Henrietta Schellenberg, another Mennonite voice, well known, I think, in the Mennonite community for her international career in oratorio. Oh. Um, and she's been teaching in, in Winnipeg for many years, many years. And her husband, Rudy Schellenberg, is a well-known choral director there in the community as well. Also the Mennonite Connections. Yeah. So, uh, but I worked with Henrietta for four years and strangely enough, as a soprano. So my start out was in a totally different fall altogether. Oh, that was one of my next questions. Were you always a mezzo? I guess not. <laughs> I was not. No, I, well, it's interesting because growing up, if you listen to my sister speak and my mother speak, we all sound pretty much the same. So it's really difficult to tell us apart on the phone. But there's always some kind of a quality to the voice. And we all sang alto. We all, huh. you know, sang the middle register stuff. But when I got to university and in my first year at CMU and do the ensemble auditions, they said, you know what? You have an upper extension. You're probably a soprano. So I said, I don't know any better. So, okay, whatever. So I had studied as a soprano for four years. I learned a lot. I think as an undergrad you're kind of just going with the direction of your teachers and hoping that they're leading you down the right path. And yeah, certainly I've, I've learned a lot about, especially managing the top register, but uh, it wasn't till later that I felt later towards the end of my studies, I would say I started to feel really uncomfortable and not sure why, maybe it was a technical thing, or maybe it was just like a shift in the physical body because the body you know, continues to grow and develop as well. So there was definitely something happening, but I wasn't totally sure what that was. And then uh, when I moved to Toronto to explore the community there, after all of my studies, I really just wanted to start fresh and start over. And I ended up exploring some of the higher lyric mezzo repertoire, just as an exploration of bringing the tessitura down a little bit. And it just kind of sat really well and I felt really comfortable. And so I decided to make that shift into that repertoire, which has been a huge, huge shift, but also it feels right. It feels like the right place to be. Would you say that it's a benefit too, uh, to have almost the best of both worlds, that you have that upper extension and also quite a lot of coloratura ability as i understand it you sing a mean rosina hmm ah <laughs> well there's certainly something about the rossini's music that really sits well in my voice and handle as well i find the coloratura and the moving moving passages of bach as well it's something my voice has just always been able to do but certainly being able to study and spend time working in the upper register and moving the voice and and finding that upper extension definitely was a huge development to that part of my voice mm -hmm. and uh, and with the middle and the bottom kind of coming in now later later in my 
I, however old I happen to be now, um, it definitely feels like it's filling in a little bit more. We won't say. No. <laughs> Never ask a lady her age. <laughs> Has anyone ever uh, steered you away from singing a particular role or uh, style of music? Yes, many times, many times. When I was just starting voice lessons in high school, I, my voice teacher at the time asked me, what do you want to do with your singing? And I said, I want to be a musical theater singer. And she looked at me and said, you know, it's not a really great life. It's kind of a, there's a lot of really broken people in that world. And I thought, well, that's silly. There's a lot of really amazing people in that world. So I don't know, I kind of felt a little bit steered away from that. But I was also told I probably would never sing Rosina. And now here I am, it's, it feels very much the core of what I would like to be doing. That's fantastic. So people say all kinds of things with the expectations. And you can either let that be, maybe it has some truth, but I think it's a discovery for oneself to decide at the end of the day, what, a, what am I good at? And whether or not someone else thinks I am or not is kind of irrelevant. That's exactly right. And I think also when we hear those things and we weigh it and decide whether we want to agree with it or not, if we still are very interested in trying that work or trying to sing a certain type of music, I think it makes us work all that harder to get there. Sometimes, sometimes yeah, it lights a little bit of a fire underneath you to say, well, I mean, at least for me, because I'm a little bit competitive. But for me, if someone says I can't do something, it just makes me want to do it more. <laughs> well, that's great. And uh, congratulations on Rosina. <laughs> oh, thank you. It was such yes. a great experience. And I hope to sing her a lot in the future. I missed your performance of Rosina just recently, but I will never forget your performance of Cherubino. And your acting skills were on fire when I saw you performing that. It's perfect for you and your personality. And so I would like to know what the most exciting role is that you've performed so far. Oh my gosh. Um, usually my favorite things are the thing I'm working on. <laughs> um, so I don't know what to tell you. I love being able to dig into a character and I, doing a lot of community theater growing up, there weren't a lot of boys in theater. So I ended up playing a lot of the boys because I was quite tall for the people that I was around. So they needed someone tall and who had, I guess, diversity and physicality to, mm -hmm. to play some of those roles. So I played a lot of boys in the theater stuff growing up and, and so I think that really translated into being able to sing the lyric mezzo stuff where you get to play a lot of boys so it kind of just is it's a natural it's a natural fit in a lot of ways and I feel most comfortable on stage when I get to goof around and if I can just do comedy I feel super at home so I think any time I get to play comedy maybe play a boy like Cherubino or somebody funny like Rosina, who's got quite a lot of attitude. Or yes. I just was recently studying Angelina from La Cenerentola as well by Rossini. And she's quite funny. She's very covert, but she's quite funny. She has little digs that she throws in all the time to her, ste her stepsisters. And so she's quite fun. And I was really disappointed not to be able to sing her which I was supposed to do, be there now in Germany to sing Angelina there. But because right. of the situation, of course, that got cancelled. So I hope to bring her to life at some point. I hope so, too. I'm curious, then, when you say you were, you've learned the role of Angelina, what, what is your learning strategy? How do you approach a new piece of music? That's a great question. And I think everybody is going to have a different approach. I want to say I'm pretty text-based. And I know that that's probably the quote unquote right answer to say to be text based, but I, I truly, you know, I, I think about this question a lot and I truly think I really approach it from text. I want to know what's being said. And that might be just because I've spent time doing theater and because I love poetry and I love the spoken word and I love Shakespeare and I love the, the rhythm of that language. I like to understand um, the rhythm of the language and how it relates to what the composer has said. And for me, it helps me understand what the composer wants from me. Mm -hmm. when, I, when I do start opening up to sing the repertoire, I feel like the rhythm of the language, the ending phrases, where the pauses are, 
where is a natural pause in what she's saying to somebody or he's saying to somebody, because I play voice too, <laughs> and where these natural text-based pauses will fall, we call them beats, I guess, in theater. And oftentimes those relationships will be exactly what the composer has put in place too. And for me, that is a really interesting fit to find those little, little moments where the text informs the music. And composers are pretty smart people. They, <laughs> we don't trust them enough, I think. And sometimes I think, you know, the phrase should go like this. And then I think, hold on, let's go back to text. What does the text say? Ah, the composer just went with exactly the rhythm that he wants you to say it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I might assume that the text is supposed to go a certain way or it's supposed to be a certain turn of phrase and it's really not fitting very well. And then I go to the music and I say, ah, the composer is telling me exactly where the syntax needs to be. In. And so maybe it will have a different joke than what right. I actually intended at the beginning. So the joke is actually different than what I thought it would be. <laughs> so I like to approach it that way, but I know everyone's got their their different tricks to to put things to memory and to to put things into the body in different ways. Yes, the text is huge. I agree with you there. It it gives us all sorts of clues about who the character is as well. And as you said, whether you can pick up an element of comic or tragedy from that character, and and the rhythm of the text in particular. When you mentioned that, it made me think you must love singing recitative. I do. That's so funny that you pick up on that. I, you know, people loathe learning Mozart recit, but it's one of my most favorite things, honestly. <laughs> it sure is fun, actually. When you think about it, uh, the way that I was taught to interpret uh, recit was to just sing basically anything that came to my mind, you know, as I was walking around the house, oh, there is a piano, and I think yes. I'm going to play it today, yes. <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> so, I, you know, then you go around thinking everything is arrested, so. <laughs> it truly, truly. Mm -hmm. So, back to uh, genres. We've talked about opera, and I think that you've also been active in the operatic community here in Toronto. Is that right? That's true. Yes. I've done a little bit of chorus work with the Toronto Operetta Theatre. And I had a, a couple of little debuts, I suppose, of little roles. And, but it's been such a great experience to be a part of that community. And I've made some really amazing friends and, and had some really fun experiences. Operetta is just fun. It's light. It's it's exciting and you can just you can really let loose on stage in a lot of ways and what did you take away from that experience after spending some time with that group oh that's a great question aside from just having fun i think it just opened up my understanding of what operetta is it's really beloved in germany and i think some people maybe on this side of the pond maybe poo poo it a little bit as being not serious music quote unquote serious but there's nothing, there's nothing not serious about it, even if it's a comedy. It's just, it's a really great art form and it really requires really good singing, really good acting. Yes. Um, I think sometimes in grand opera, one can hide a little bit because the music is so overwhelming. You can, you can hide behind it in, the, in a way, but in operetta, every single person on stage is part of the action at all times. So it really challenges you to stay focused and to stay present in the character, even if you're a chorus member, you're a minor character, staying present on stage and, and acting even in the moments where you have nothing else going on takes a lot of energy. And all those people and components to putting on a show, every single person is important on stage. Doesn't matter if you're a lead, support or chorus, every person makes a show. Absolutely. And there's no one better to learn operetta from, I think, and stage technique as uh, Bill Silva. It's true. Yes. He really challenges people to stay present and focus in each moment. And I think that's a real great lesson for, for everybody to learn. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that would be something. <laughs> now, you also love to sing oratorio. You did mention Handel as a composer that you like. How many performances of oratorio have you done? And do you think that that will be something that you'll always return to? 
Oh my gosh, I don't know if, it, if I could even count. I mean, when you're doing Bach growing up and or you're doing Bach through through university, which was quite a lot of focus of my undergrad studies, doing a lot of Bach, you lose track of how many. He's written so many cantatas. I, I don't even know how many I've done now. But uh, yes, oratorio has been a real learning tool. And it's a really, I would call it a way of communing with the music that's a little bit different than characters on stage. Now, it doesn't have any less drama than an opera, but the drama itself is in this, this spiritual experience that Bach is creating with the musical relationships, with line relationships, and vocal relationships, and orchestral relationships, and all of these communing moments of, of Bach, and, and Handel does it too, where these, these relationships of voice and and text and drama without the actual physical drama of it. I think, I think every singer needs to sing oratorio and I think every singer should sing oratorio. I think every singer should also sing Handel, but I might get some backlash on that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think Handel really teaches really solid contained technique and I think a lot of people feel really constrained by it, but I think it's really freeing to, to really feel the voice have to, and in order to sing it well, to, it has to line up in a really slender way in order to make it through these phrases that he's written. Mm -hmm. And I think it teaches really good singing and it's just beautiful. Yeah, that's just a, a benefit, right? A fringe benefit of singing that music. And, you know, oratorio to me is so very spiritual. Obviously, it's it's religious based. So it's, it's a little different from the frivolous storylines that we get in opera or operetta. And that's what makes it so beautiful as well. I think maybe we take it a little more seriously because it's, it's meant to be, you know, thoughtful and um, make us really dig deep in terms mm -hmm. of what it's all about. But have you ever performed in a show where they've taken an oratorio and actually staged it? I have not had that pleasure, but I know that that's kind of a new, or it's a new development, or at least maybe in Canada, it's a new thing to start staging these things. Now I know that uh, one of my one most favorite singers, Lyric Mezzo, Lorraine Hunt Lieberson, once staged Bach's cantata Ich habe genug, and she staged it while she was, I think she was dealing with her cancer at the time, and she staged it in a hospital, singing from her hospital bed. And I, I have seen a clip of it, I've never seen the whole thing. But that was the first time I had ever heard of like a cantata or an oratorio or one of these sacred pieces ever being uh, staged. And I'm sure it's happened many times. We just don't hear about it. It just seems like the art form has really evolved to not include staging. But I think it's a really interesting exercise to do that. And especially in a time now when people are so visual. I think going to a cantata performance or an oratorio might be a little bit more difficult to, to fill seats. But if there's an element of staging, I think and it might be an avenue in to bring some more people in of different, different artistic interests and different artistic backgrounds and collaborative opportunities. Yes, it definitely would be. And after all, the stories are biblical stories. That's what we're singing about. So why not stage that and bring them to life in a little bit of a different way? So we've talked about opera, operetta, oratorio. Where do you really feel as a performer that you are the best? Oh my, I would have to toot my horn a little bit, I think, in, in answering that one. I also have branched into, I used to sing a lot of jazz, actually. Oh. Um, so uh, that's somewhere where I feel really at home because it's something I do for fun and there's no expectations on me to perform in a certain way. So I just do that because I enjoy it and because it's, um, it's soul filling for me. Absolutely. I don't get a lot of opportunities to do it anymore, but, uh, but when I do, it's, it's like coming home in a lot of ways. But I, I like to use my, my love for jazz to inform the rest of my singing. And I try to find the home that I feel with singing jazz. I try to find that home and that physical connection in everything else that I do too. So. 
Jazz is interesting. Some people think that, oh, you know, I'll just sing some jazz rap. And uh, when you actually take it apart and look at jazz, it's a whole other approach to singing and enunciating and bringing your personality out to it's it's completely different from classical so you almost have to step outside of all that classical training and uh, become that jazz artist somebody else absolutely i think there's an intimacy and i would relate this to the to art song as well there's an intimacy about the text when you're singing jazz because it's it yes it is sound based but it's more it's more an exploratory experience I think when you're doing, especially when you get to collaborate with people who are just like on this journey and uh, maybe people, I think, poo-poo jazz a little bit or don't like jazz because they just, they feel disconnected from it. But I think at the end of the day, it's the same issue I think that we have with, with looking at art song and trying to connect with art song in a new way. But I think if you find honesty in the text and you find honesty in your delivery, and an intimacy in those things. I think people really connect to the person rather than to the story and the grandiosity of a, of a big opera stage. They connect yeah. to a person. And that's what I find really, really amazing about it. I have some great conversations with people after a jazz show and they just wanna talk about music. They wanna talk about art and they've connected to a person rather than just like, oh, you're the big singer at the front of the stage. Oh my gosh, I can't talk to you. But they want to talk to you after those kind of things. So they feel connected to you. Yeah. That's but, what I find the most rewarding about performing in general. But in those, I find it really immediate. Yes, 100%. That's, that's always the objective, isn't it? To connect with your audience and somehow make a difference to somebody. And it's Absolutely. wonderful when you discover that that has happened. You must have had to learn many languages by now to do what you do. So I'd love to talk about some of the languages you've performed in and maybe what the differences are that you found in, in each one of those. Oh gosh. Yeah, I think as opera singers, there's quite a demand for us to be convincing in many different languages. And if you're convincing enough, someone will ask you if you speak it, which is always a compliment. <laughs> so I, I, of course, I speak English and I'm learning a couple of other languages, but I hope that I sound convincing in languages like French, Italian, German are the cores, of course, of the opera repertoire. Mm -hmm. Of course, we sing in a lot of Latin with the oratorio. Um, but I've sung in, of course, we sing in Spanish. I've sung in Finnish, I've sung in Hebrew, I've sung in, wow. yeah, all kinds of languages that, that have differences, but also so many similarities too. It's, it's, that's what I find the most interesting about being able to sing in all these languages is that you find the differences and then you find the similarities and you find an avenue in. Right. Vocally speaking though, is there one language that you feel you can sing the most easily in based on the structure of the language or the the shapes of the vowels um i think i'm with christina like you talked last week i really like singing in french french there's i wonder if i wonder if there is a connection between the vowels the mixed vowels that we sing in french and the middle voice in which many of these compos French composers write, and the ease of the mezzo-soprano in the middle register. I think that there's a connection, and I think so many mezzo-sopranos like to sing in French because it really opens up the middle, meaty, easy part of the voice in so many ways. You think about Carmen, she's a great character, but she's also written in French for a mezzo. Oh. So it's really delicious to sing because it's right in the sweet spot of the voice. And so, of course, everyone wants to sing her because she's an amazing person. But she, the music itself is also delicious to sing because it just opens the voice in a way. But I've also had the chance to sing in Norwegian. At a, a recent concert, I sang uh, a Solveig song from Pyrgint. And, and it was really interesting. So learning, I mean, I don't speak any Norwegian at all, 
but you try to be as convincing as you can in these languages. But uh, in my research, you discover, or I discovered, that apparently, and now someone else can correct me if I'm wrong, that Norwegian is the closest language to English for an English speaker to learn. So if you were to learn another language, Norwegian would be the simplest one because the sounds are pretty much the same. The organization of those sounds is a little bit different, but it was really interesting to, to feel that in the formants, in the mouth and the, the tip of the tongue and the teeth and the lips and all of these <laughs> things that you use in your native language. And these things are also being used in Norwegian. You're not wrapping your tongue around something that's completely foreign. But, but it was really interesting to be able to sing in that and, and feel quite comfortable, even if the sounds were new. Maybe you'll pick some Norwegian up. Uh, how about looking at Duolingo? Yeah, there you go. There's always these new avenues. <laughs> That's right. Well, thank you for sharing that. I would never have thought of Norwegian as a, an a easier to sing in language, but maybe I'll have to give it a shot. <laughs> There's some beautiful music. I think Edvard Grieg wrote quite a lot in Norwegian as well. And, and as a soprano, there's some beautiful stuff. You should have a look at it. Okay, thanks for the tips. <laughs> so you did mention Germany and that you were to sing Cenerentola. Uh, and uh, I understand that you're actually flying back out there again soon. Yeah, so I mean, it's been a bit of a difficulty to make the plans at this time and, you know, checking websites for different organizations and government policies and, you know, airplane policies and how to book something when during a, a quarantine or rather a pandemic. But I'm heading over to, I'm trying to get to Austria, which Canadians aren't actually allowed to enter by air just yet. So I have to go by land. Wow. <laughs> So I have to fly into Germany and then head over to Austria later on. Um, and I'm going to be do, going to Salzburg to do a competition there. I've been invited to the Opera im Berg Festival to sing with their Grandi Bocci vocal competition. So they have a series of three rounds. So it's like a whole week of listening to a hundred other singers and, and just have fun, hopefully. That is so exciting. Oh my goodness. I wish you all the best in that. Thank you. I think it'll be a good experience. And I've never been to Austria, so it'll be a really good experience. Oh, you're going to love it. It's absolutely gorgeous there. And if you end up in Vienna, you'll have to look Christina up too. Yes, we've actually already connected. I think we're planning oh, to go hiking. Great. So oh, great. <laughs> That is great. When, when you did spend some time in Germany then, how long were you there? I've been a few times now. Uh, the first time I spent some time over there was two years ago. I was there about two and a half months. And it was sort of an exploratory experience. I was there to take some German language courses, to work with a coach in Berlin, and just kind of feel what it feels like to live over there. And of course, do some auditions while I'm there too. So it was sort of an exploratory to see how I felt in the country, how I felt the response would be to my auditions, whether or not I felt that that was somewhere that I saw myself working in the future and if I would fit. That's always the curiosity is, do I fit? Do I fit anything you can hire me for? Please hire me. <laughs> so I learned a lot. It was a good experience. It was Berlin in the wintertime is quite gray, oh. but uh, that was a challenge in itself. But it was a, at the end of the day, it was a good experience. That's good. Yeah. I, yeah. I'm always curious what that must be like. Do you have to put those feelers out and really just see if it's something that, as you say, that you'll fit into or whether, whether you'll be accepted by the people in, in the business over there. So good for exactly. you trying and uh, <laughs> congratulations on fitting in because I think you did. <laughs> well, I'm coming back. So I've been back a couple of times now. So it, every time I go, I start to feel more and more like okay I think I can be here. Excellent. Now when you were going to sing Tenerentola and it had to be cancelled because of COVID do they have any plans to remount it again in the future and will you be going back to do that? I actually don't know. My hunch is that they're probably just going to move forward with their next season plans and it's possible I won't get the chance to sing it just yet. Oh. But, uh, and that's disappointing. Of course, I'm sure there are many other singers in the same boat, but I, it gives me a chance to maybe dig into her a little more and really prepare her 
in in a post-COVID way, whatever that might mean yet. <laughs> well, that's great. So there's a silver lining, right? You get a little more time. And I get more time. Yeah, that's, that's great. Okay, so I have a few other questions for you, Megan. In terms of the performing arts world, you know, we've talked about how our music reaches people, how we connect with the audience, and what it means to sing religious music, uh, having grown up in the, in the choral tradition that you grew up in. But have you thought about ways in which your music and your performances could really bring something to a cause that's important to you? Um, I like to think that our music is reaching people in the purity of what it is. I know that might be a little bit optimistic. I think every artist wants to know that their art is enough to reach people and that people will, if they don't have a hunger yet for it, that they will help help someone find the hunger for it. I think art can be used and music art in any form can be used for 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 any cause, whether it's good or bad. So my, my dad actually works for an organization called the Eden Foundation, which uh, is, is a support system for people with mental health needs. And I think in my family, I think in my connections and wider communities, I think mental health, even in this time, is incredibly important. And the Eden Foundation is actually putting together a virtual concert of people from our community here in Southern Manitoba who have connections to the music world, who have connections to here at home in Southern Manitoba. And we're doing a virtual concert, which I'm gonna be submitting some music for as well. And I really feel like that's a, a really great cause to be able to be part of. And I would love to see, I would love to see more artists uh, talk about mental health. I'd like to see more artists be be more supportive of organizations that talk about mental health or support mental health. And of course, it's something we, I think everybody, it touches everybody. It touches, even if you don't experience it yourself, it's going to touch your family, your community. It affects everybody at all times. And then when we bond together to support each other, and especially because art is such a healing thing, we can only be stronger as a community. We can only be stronger for each other and with each other. And I think art is a really beautiful tool to bring that together. I would love to, to do more of it and be more involved. So it's nice to be back home at this time to be able to be part of the virtual concert we're putting together. Oh, that sounds wonderful. And yes, beautiful is the right word to describe how you can reach people just to to save us, you know, <laughs> save us from ourselves and, and mm -hmm. help us through some tough times or, or help us feel better when we're down. Music has always done that. And so for you to be able to share your gift in that way and also bring support to organizations that need it, who help us when we need help with our mental health, that's wonderful. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm sure you're going to do a lot more of that in your career in the future. I hope so. I'm curious whether, I'm going to jump back a little bit on my list here of questions, but I'm curious whether you would have a funny or embarrassing moment to share with us in your experience over the last few years. You know, this was the one question that, that I was uh, not sure how to answer. I think, <laughs> you know, I think we have these moments and we never really take note of them because I, I think sometimes we think in an embarrassing moment, on stage or something that happens on stage we sometimes view them as a failure so it's it was even a process to try to come up with something it's like what can i share that doesn't make me feel like a failure but you know what i think <laughs> or, let's just talk about it and then and then maybe someone else won't feel like a failure because they'll know that they're not alone love that so, <laughs> um i mean stuff happens all the time i, I thought of three things one was, of course, you know, every singer's nightmare that we have, you know, nightmares about of forgetting words on stage <laughs> during a show. We like literally have nightmares about it. Or I personally have nightmares about showing up to first rehearsal, which is always a big deal. But showing up to first rehearsal, uh, having learned the completely the wrong opera. Oh. <laughs> and having to sight read my way through first rehearsal is always my nightmare. But of course, the other one is forgetting words on stage. And I was part of a summer program 
years ago through the University of Manitoba and we were doing a scene from Little Women and I was playing Beth and it's the scene with all four girls and they're sorting the laundry and they're having this round discussion and talking about all kinds of things and having a great time and I forgot all of my words all of them <laughs> the poor girls around me were all you know they just kept on going they were just real model colleagues to just be able wow. to to fit in everything with me just like I opened my mouth and nothing came out I was completely lost and I just looked around at everyone and just folded socks and <laughs> pretended that it was perfectly normal that I just <laughs> said absolutely nothing and just kept on going. So I think about that all the time. And for me, it's a learning tool to say, I never want to be in that situation ever again. And I want to be a good colleague and be able to pick up my minds, even if my colleague forgets. That was my my learning situation. That's so funny. And I've been there too, I have to confess. So, and you think in those moments, it feels like an eternity on stage. And when it's only really, you know, one or two, maybe three seconds worth of music has flown by and uh, you, you know, you're in slow motion all of a sudden. Yes. Um, do, you, do you think that it's the, it's the brain kind of connection to what you're doing with your hands Possibly you're focusing on a task on stage, you're using a prop and you're, you know, maybe a little distracted by that. And, and if you drift a little bit in your thoughts, it's so easy to forget your words. Yes, that might be the case. If it's not a mind, a total mind body integration, it's very easy to forget. And maybe that, maybe you're right. If I'm just thinking off the top of my head here to think since then, I'm very deliberate about, deliberate about my physical integration before I get to rehearsals mm -hmm. so that every movement I'm doing pretend staging in my room or my studio before I even get to first staging rehearsal so that it's already in my body and the director can just tell me what to do and I don't have to worry about what my body's doing. It's already there. That's so smart. So, yeah, well, maybe that was my learning experience that I'm never being in that situation again. <laughs> I, I was able to ask a fairly well-known singer recently how they usually work in order to remember the words and it was exactly that it was to incorporate an action with the words so that you remember where you're moving when those words come out of your mouth what step you're going to take or what gesture you will make with your arm even if you're not on stage with uh with props or anything like that but just possibly in a opera and concert type performance or even an oratorio that you have to sing off book, the tiniest little movement could twig your memory and help you with where you are with your words. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I have a story to tell too, but I'll save that for another time. Oh, <laughs> we'll have to get someone to interview you next. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. It, it really is every singer's nightmare to be honest yeah absolutely. truly truly the other one i was going to mention just briefly if you can and you can take this away later if you like but losing your voice in the middle of a show also oh. is another nightmare <laughs> i did a, a production of alcina and it was a production of opera in the round so the audience was totally around us it was really intimate and i got so sick after the first show that I lost my voice entirely for the entire second show. And it was literally right before we went on stage that my voice just quit. Oh, just oh, quit. No. So I was doing all the, you know, singer things to preserve as much as possible. And I was about to go on stage and I was like, my voice just stopped. I couldn't even speak. So we had to cut my aria from the show because I could not phonate. And I just kind of croaked my way through recitative and just acted the pants off of it. Ah, <laughs> find another way to compensate. Find a way. <laughs> <laughs> Too funny. Oh, I know that what I wanted to ask you about when you just mentioned being worried about and or losing your voice, you said something about doing all the singer things to to <laughs> to avoid that what what are some of your rituals that you do to take care of your voice and to stay healthy to be a singer because your voice is your body it's your instrument so you've got to care for it right what's what's megan's recipe oh that's a great one it's and indeed it is individual recipes for every person i think I mean, general things like exercising regularly, staying strong in your body, staying 
staying strong in your mind is a big one. Staying strong in your spirit, all of these things have to integrate in order to, I think, give all of yourself. Uh, get a good night's sleep, drink lots of water, of mm -hmm. course. If I feel something coming on, I am a stickler for a saltwater rinse. If, and I think any pharmacist will tell you the same thing. If you feel a tickle, a little light salt in some water and you gargle with that, you know, after you brush your teeth, gargle with that, then you go to bed and you wake up and you do it again in the morning, brush your teeth in the morning, you do the salt water rinse and let it sit there. Mm -hmm. Not too harsh or it will irritate more than help. Uh, you, you know, the garlic, the ginger, the turmeric teas. <laughs> I'm all over those. <laughs> um, I, I'm a big proponent of eucalyptus oil. I find that really helpful just to clear, clear things out. Yeah. And I think everybody's gut health is really important. So uh, at least for me, gut health is really important because it also integrates with mind health. And there's lots of interesting science around that integration. So if my gut feels good and my mind, fe then my mind feels good and vice versa. So eating well, eating a healthy, balanced diet and, and keep the flora and fauna of the gut happy. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly right. That's fantastic. You know, it's funny. I remember about 20 years ago, I was part of a little concert and the lead soprano backstage was doing yoga. And I thought, look at her, isn't that weird? <laughs> and it took me, you know, all these 20 years to figure out that I needed to do that in order yes. to, to find more confidence in myself and, and build my muscles and, and my flexibility, but just to relax mm -hmm. with too before yeah. any singing. Uh, so I'll never forget watching her do yoga and thinking, gosh, that's strange. <laughs> and <now laughs> she's really on to something. <laughs> it is. It's really good for breathing. And of course, you know, the muscular, muscular strength and stamina. And I think as singers, we, we spend a lot of time standing. So being able to stand, you know, in a really healthy po postural way, I think yoga is really, really good for that, especially, and also the breathing, the low breath, the connected to your body and connected to your movement is absolutely one of the most healthy things. Yes, yes, it is. Megan, if I were to ask you what piece of advice you might give to a young singer today who's just starting out and thinking about university for vocal studies, what advice would you give? Mm, sing your Italian art songs. <laughs> Spend time with them and make friends with them because they teach so much. I know I hear a lot of young singers who, you know, roll their eyes at that yellow book of 24 Italian <laughs> art songs. But you know what? I've come to really love them and I still come back to them if I feel like I'm, I'm not really feeling centered today or I feel I don't really know what to sing. I don't really, nothing's really speaking to me. I'll go back to an Italian art song and just get centered again and find that place inside that, you know, if you don't find it an interesting thing, at least connect to that poetry, that poetry. Mm, it's just so delicious. Um, and I usually find my core again after singing those. I would say, you know, take your time. People will pressure you to be, quote unquote, ready to go by the time you're 25, but it's going to take way longer than that. It's, you know, I think the system really pushes people to try to be ready really early. And I just think that's not reality in, in where people are, you know, able to grow at a young point to come to, to be able to be at a professional level, to be feel totally centered in their body, to know what their body's doing. Um, you might be on the path and you might be on the, on the track, but it's not going to be done. You're ne and you're never done. No one's ever done. <laughs> you're never done learning. You're never done growing. So I'd say, take your time. You people will tell you all kinds of things. Oh, you need to be ready by this, this time or whatever. But everybody's different and if it takes you till you're 35 or 45 or 55 <laughs> like honestly it's art why do we have to put a timeline on art so just give yourself time yes always be growing and always be curious always be curious about other art forms and how they integrate into what it is you want to do and I would say shape your career around your values not your values around your career Wow, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing that advice. So Megan, 
I've asked you about what kind of advice you might give to a young singer. I'm wondering if you have come across any resources that you would recommend for, for an aspiring singer to look at. Absolutely. I'm an avid reader and I love research. I think I'm like Christina in that way too. That's why we get along so well. <laughs> I'm always reading something and sometimes I'll put it down and start something else in the meantime because I need, I need to know more about this other thing. Well, the first one I would recommend is, of course, the book I think most singers are really familiar with is What the Fah by Philip Shepard. Love it. Of course. <laughs> It's a huge resource of information. Some of it is, I think, maybe starting to become a little more outdated, but there's still a lot of really good information in general in there. I know I have the second edition in my hands here right now, but um, there might be a new edition with some other things. The second, maybe as an extension to that, would be this Berenreiter publication called Singing Opera in Germany, a practical guide by Marita Knobel and Brigitte Steinert. This is a great book that talks all about daily living in Germany, studying how to audition, professional behavior, how to sing in the chorus, because that's a great gig, like you heard from Christina last mm -hmm. week, acting for singers, what agents can do for you, sample letters in German, all kinds of really interesting information in there, how to work with a prompter, we don't learn that in school. No. Wow, <laughs> so there's prompters. <laughs> the people have prompters. Yeah, that's the thing. And like, we don't get that chance to work with them. So there's some really great tips there. Uh, and the third book here I would recommend is called Aria Ready, The Business of Singing by Carol Kirkpatrick. This is a great resource. It deals with all kinds of different aspects of your learning process of uh, integrating your learning into from school into your everyday study that happens after school is done. How do I be a singer now? This was really helpful for me in learning how to negotiate contracts, what to expect from agents, and I refer to it all the time as almost a Bible in the business of singing. There's some really great exercises in self-exploration, in understanding your goals and your values and what it is that you're looking for in a career. I would say oh. those are my top three suggestions to, oh, to any singer in school or even, you know, beginning to do it on your own, or even if you are already on your own. Thank you so much for sharing those. That's, that's great. I'm going to have a look at those books. <laughs> do, they're really great. Have you read any singer's biographies that have resonated with you? You know, I think I read Maureen Forrester's many years ago. That was really interesting and, you know, to talk about the business at the time mm -hmm. and how it's changed now from so many years ago. Of course, you know, Renee Fleming has a really popular book, which was a big impact on me when I first started, started singing. It was really interesting to read. I love um, that because it made her human for me. It really did. It yeah. really did. I also read Deborah Voigt's biography or her memoir biography as well and that was really interesting i mean she deals she has dealt with quite a lot behind the scenes and i think it's much more common than we like to talk about the daily struggle the living away from home mm -hmm. there's there's addiction in opera there's loneliness on the road there's mm -hmm. a lot of daily life that we don't really talk about uh, with these artists that we adore on stage, but they have lives too. And it's, it's, it's important for us to know that they're people and they struggle with things just like everyone else. So it makes the, yeah, it makes them really human. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. You have brought us a beautiful aria to listen to, and I would love for you to introduce it and tell us why you chose this recording. Sure. So this is, uh, this aria is A Fuggio Traditor from Mozart's opera Don Giovanni, which I recently had the big pleasure of being able to perform with some wonderful colleagues in Weimar in Germany, which I think Christina was part of Lyric Opera Studio Weimar as well, and that's where I was able to perform it. Donna Elvira is singing to Zerlina on stage, who's the young lady who's just been married or engaged, however you'd like to stage it, and has also been 
seduced by Mr. Don Giovanni himself. And she <laughs> bursts into the scene to break this thing up and to rescue her from his clutches um, and tells her to flee from the traitor. Don Elvira was uh, quite the stretch for me uh, vocally, uh, but I had great fun learning a lot from her, learning a lot from Mozart. Um, Don Elvira is one of those kind of zwischen-y roles that can go in so many different casting ways. And I was terrified of her at the beginning, but I think we made friends in the end. <laughs> and this is a recording from that production. Oh, very nice. Well, I loved it. And in particular, the closing passages, that is some exciting coloratura right there, isn't it? Well, hey, every chance I get to move, <laughs> I will I will take advantage of that. And, you know, it's one of those two of going, oh, no, it's a big upward, upward descending coloratura rather than a downward, just like descending coloratura, which has its own challenges. So and then, of course, the tessitura is quite high for me. But uh, I think it ended up sounding all right in the end. I had great fun anyway. I think you did a brilliant job and I'm very glad you shared that particular thank art you. with us. Well, thank you, Megan, for being part of Classical Voice Canada today. I've really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you so much for having me. It's been my absolute pleasure. Megan agreed to provide another aria for us to listen to because that little teaser just wasn't enough. Here, we are going to listen to her singing De Tu Bellanima by Bellini from the opera I Capuletti e I Montecchi. And we have on the piano wonderful collaborator Rachel Andrist.
Thank you for joining us for this second episode of Classical Voice Canada, where today we interviewed mezzo-soprano Megan Reimer-Larios. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today, and we look forward to having you join us again in the future.